Welcome back to the Ed Morrissey Show. Joining us, as always, on Tuesday's podcast, Andrew Malcolm, the prince of Twitter. And I forget what I called you the last time, but over at redstate.com, he's one of our columnists at redstate.com. What did I call you? It was something really clever, too, Andrew. Was that the the masseuse of Red State? No, I don't think I don't think it was the masseuse of Red State. I think there was some alliteration. It started with an R, the royal... Regent, the royal regent, the regent, the regent of Red State, yes. <laughs> yeah, it's a good crowd over there, you know. They they really turn out the stuff. Oh, and of course, you've got a great column up. We should just go ahead and start off with your column over there, VIP column that uh, came out uh, yesterday, I believe, yesterday afternoon, as we're yep. recording this on Monday. Uh, the real reason behind Breyer's retirement is ominous for Democrats. There's a lot that's ominous for Democrats right now, <laughs> yeah. Andrew. Yeah, well, it's a long time. It's 40 weeks until the midterms. But uh, people's impressions that they take into the verdict, the, the early verdict on a presidency, are really pretty much solidified by summer. So there's not a whole lot of time left for Biden to, uh, to change course uh, of how people see him. He's down to, what, 40% approval now from 55, 56 Uh, and on the subjects, economy, pandemic, and so on, it's even worse than that. So, uh, he would like to change the narrative and, uh, what is kind of haunting the back of my mind is that, um, some kind of military operation with Ukraine, uh, would certainly change the narrative away from that and make him a, a commander in chief, even though he's not one. Um, so that's a little worrisome, but, uh, yeah, the Breyer, uh, retirement is, um, the main focus of, of the column was that it's, uh, basically a confession or admission by Democrats that they're going to lose the Senate too, uh, or at very, very least, uh, a deep concern that they're going to lose the Senate. Right. Uh, you know, it's 50-50 now, as you know. Um, and uh, that makes it, interestingly, uh, the Judiciary Committee that's going to hear the confirmation on whomever it is, is also 50-50 and 10-10 Republicans and Democrats. So there could be some problems there. Um, but the fact is that they were they're in a hurry they're in a hurry to get all this big spending done uh, before they get shellacked in the house and they're also in the hurry to get this confirmation of a new uh, justice done and i i see some blowback over the weekend on the stip the, the polls what was the, you you guys had a poll what was 76 percent right. said no he should just pick on qualifications not just race yep uh, and there was a color. Uh, there was a ch- uh, a cartoon of Biden looking at a color chart to pick his next um, Supreme Court nominee. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, that's like Bill Bill Clinton. Remember, he he did a poll to find out where he should go on vacation, where that would make him popular. Right. Yeah. I, yeah. Um, it, it it's 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 it's. Um, if I was the nominee, I, I would be embarrassed that you get picked for the, well, I guess Kamala Harris was picked for um, being black and the same is gonna go on uh, for whomever he picks if he follows through with his promises that Biden is not so good on keeping promises. That's for sure. We weren't gonna have a, a, a vaccine mandate. We weren't gonna have a mask mandate. Uh, we were going to get all the Americans and allies out of Afghanistan. There's a whole bunch of things that he uh, changed his mind on, and he's just oblivious to it. And, of course, the media who wants him to succeed, they're not going to blow the whistle on him after a first day or two. So it's, uh, it's, it's ominous for the Democrats. I guess it's good if you want to, if you're a Republican and you want to pounce on some issue like this, but it's not so good for the country. Well, I I think that, you know, you're talking about the ABC Ipsos poll that came out of the weekend on this. Yeah, 76%, I believe, uh, wanted 
the pick to just be solely on the basis of qualifications. And I think that that really speaks to how much the Democrats are out of touch with the actual voters here and how much that oh, they are. Yeah. I mean, really, honestly, I mean, and this is the there's this quote in a um, political article. It just popped up a couple hours before you and I uh, were doing this. And it was the Nebraska um, Nebraska Democratic Party chair. I think her name is Jan Klebe, who said, you know, we're doing all these wonderful things um, as Democrats, but voters aren't on our side. And I would argue that it's not that voters aren't on their side. It's that they're not on the voters' side. Voters, they, the voters' side, yeah. I mean, they're tone not paying deaf. attention. Yeah, yeah, totally tone deaf, right? They're, you've got inflation raging. You've got supply chain crises up and down you know, up and down the no, distribution No, no, wait a change. minute. Wait a minute, Ed. Uh, Joe said the supply chain crisis was ended in December. Yeah, and Jen Psaki, we're going to get to, I guess we can bring this up now. Jen Psaki said that, uh, what crime rate? What what crime concerns? Uh, that's only part of the alternate universe of Fox News, even though there are, in the past week, <laughs> CNN, CBS, and the New York Times has covered... Um, in, in whole or in part, the high priority that voters are putting on the explosion of crime in the United States over the last couple of years. And um, I mean, this is part of this whole disconnect. And I mean, this is this is clearly what's motivating them to go through all of this. I would argue that this is Kabuki theater. I think they've had this. I think they've had this pick in the pocket all along. And they're they're going through this this sort of fulmination of well I'm going to talk to everybody and we're going to go over everybody's writings and et cetera et cetera et cetera even though they've known for a couple of months that Breyer specifically was going to retire and they've had a whole year in office to prepare for their first Supreme Court pick based on their campaign pledge and I think it's it's for the reason that you say is that uh, even though they're fumbling this as they usually do this at least is a uh, topic which will eventually pay off for Biden one way or the other, whereas nothing else that's going on, Ukraine, <laughs> the economy, nothing else that's going on is a payoff for Biden. This is a good distraction for the White House. It is. It is. And it's, it should be more than a distraction. But for them, everything is strategy. Everything is short term in Washington these days for both sides. It's a shame because... Um, not so long ago, uh, people used to go to Washington and, and yeah, there were show offs, but there were also uh, people who were doing doing their jobs and trusting that people would see that they did a good job and reelect them. But now it's all, as you said, Kabuki, it's all showbiz. Uh, we're going to have a news conference to show that we're concerned about crime, even though we haven't done anything about it. And that's what the presidency has become. The photo ops, fly to Chicago two hours for a 20 minute photo op and then fly back for two hours, what almost a quarter of a million dollars an hour for Air Force One. It, it's, um, it's pathetic and, and, and Americans uh, voters, and they're trusting that American voters stay unattentive, inattentive, that they right. don't pay attention and that they won't remember come November, which, as I said, is only 40 weeks away. Um, but there's not a lot of time for Obama to or <laughs> Obama for Biden to change his uh, the impression of what he's doing. Now, he's going to try to go out. He says he's going to go out and do more. But every time he goes out and does something, he does his little whisper thing or he does something. Yeah. yeah. That, that feeds that narrative that he's um, a little loopy. Not just a little loopy. I mean, again, you're dealing with a confidence crisis here, a confidence crisis cascade. If you look at these polls, that I don't think we've ever seen a Democratic president, maybe not since Carter, but Carter spent three years earning that before it, before it finally arrived, <laughs> right? I mean, this started within, what, seven months of Biden taking office. He, he oh, yeah. was almost precisely seven months after he took office. This thing started to to go the wrong direction and it's been going massively in the wrong direction ever since. And uh, and so the Supreme Court thing here is is a real lifeline. But 
and you mentioned this, I mean, you, you talk about how this is uh, a tacit acknowledgement that they got to get this done quickly, not just because they don't think that they're going to win the Senate in in uh, the fall, which I think is very much the case. I think that, that but also the fact that <laughs> they might not hold it for very much longer just because of, you know, random fate. Um, they're one heartbeat away, basically, from losing control of the Senate. And yeah, there's a lot true. of yeah. there's a lot of elderly people in this. Well, really, in both parties, there's a lot of elderly people oh, in the Senate. Yeah, but, I mean, Nancy Pelosi turns uh, 81 next month. Oh, um, Diane Feinstein's going to be what, March, 88, 89, something 89. like that. 89. Gerald uh, Grassley is uh, is 88, I think, already. Yep. But the all of the House leadership, the three top Democrats, are all in their 80s. Um, Schumer's 70 um, and and uh, yeah they're they're old timers and they hang on to this uh, they cling to this leadership thing I guess that's a that's a human thing I don't know but if if you're worried about the party if you want to change the image of the party which is now as you pointed out last week uh, the sense of um, what do you call it? the generic ballot with parties right um as uh, has gone the other way by what nine points um depending on which poll yeah 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 and, so, and, uh, and and bear in mind too that generally speaking on that generic ballot democrats need at least a five point margin just to hold serve right i mean if yeah. it's if it's anything less than d plus five they're in trouble and we're seeing some results r plus nine i mean this is mm. This is like, it's not just a red wave. It's sort of like that scene from The Shining where the elevator's open and blood just comes flying out. Um, but, I, you know, I worked for a politician for two terms and it's at state level. And um, he, uh, he always tried to calm people down because a lot of the staff people were saying, oh, well, we've got to do this. This will look good. We've got to do this. And he said, you know, no matter what we do, voters are going to figure it out now that's in a smaller society than the entire united states that was in montana which has just over a million people right uh and three electoral votes or four now there will have four uh but his confidence uh may be a little bit outdated but that voters will figure it out and it seems it took seven months and a lot of voters have figured it out that uh that they didn't pay enough attention to the guy they were electing they were all focused on the guy they were unelecting right right i mean and you know that's certainly part of elections is is unfortunately making binary choices when both choices aren't may not be terribly great uh but yeah. you still got to choose one over the other this but i think in part two What's happening here is that voters, and this is part of this whole confidence crisis issue, um, is that voters have realized that they were being sold a, you know, empathetic centrist who is really all all about you know uh, finding finding consensus and and being you know nice to cats. That that was the other thing I wanted to ask you about. I mean. <laughs> I don't know that I've seen as many mainstream media, you know, stories about cats as as I did last at the end of last week when the White House suddenly decided that they needed another pet. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, Clinton had one. Socks. Remember? Socks. I remember socks. Yeah, and he lived outside the Oval Office, and then when Clinton left and didn't need a cat anymore, his secretary. Um, uh, took the cat home. And I remember some years later, then there was a picture of her walking this old cat around a garden, uh, on the way to, uh, crossing the rainbow bridge. Ooh, but, yeah. uh, but, um, you know, they discard it. it would be interesting to see, uh, if, uh, Obama still has his two dogs that he had staffers walk at the white house well i mean you don't even need to go back that far 
there's two dogs that know, or at least one dog, I think two dogs yeah. that don't live at the White House anymore under Biden. I mean, in a, one yeah. year they've 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 actually they've actually fired more dogs than they fired <laughs> cabinet secretaries. Yeah, and there was a, a video over Christmas of Biden walking on the beach with it looked like a a, a hellish place with the wind blowing and the waves, but walking on the beach in Delaware with his new dog, Commander, who was a puppy. Right. Uh, so uh, we'll, we'll have, um, they've all got to have a dog. I remember when I, when I worked for George W. Bush in Texas, um, he had, um, oh, now I forgot his name. Spot, Spotty. Spot, yeah. Yeah, Spot. And he had Spot. And Spot, <laughs> there, it's like a, a corner lot in downtown Austin. And uh, with, you know, a fence around it. And, and the security office was in the second floor over the garage. And Spotty, uh, rather than be a watchdog and patrol the perimeter and all that, he would go up to the security office and he'd sleep under the desk. And whenever the alarm went off that someone had touched the fence or whatever, he'd jumped up and run out and be all berkey and alerting the world that, that, that he was there. So he was a smart, a smart little guy. Well, you know, we, you, we're mentioning, you know, dogs and we're mentioning uh, signs that uh, signs that things aren't going well. Um, of course, one of the signs that things aren't going well is you get a new pet for the White House, so the media has something else yeah. to talk about. You, yeah. you use yeah. a Supreme Court, you, you stretch out a Supreme Court nomination as long as possible in order to get people to stop talking about all the ways you're failing. But there is another more traditional way, uh, or at least another traditional way, to to deal with um, bad polling numbers, and that's to find a cabinet secretary to fire. Now, I just got done mentioning. <laughs> yes. Oh, what a segue, Morrissey. Hey, I, I'm a professional at this, man. I'll just yes, tell you that you right now. Sure I'm, I'm a you professional sure at this. Change the narrative. Yeah, well, uh, they're it changing him. <laughs> changing the narrative, I guess, around HHS, because the Washington Post had what can only be described as such an obvious trial balloon that the obviousness was part of the strategy. Um, they are talking about Javi, uh, Xavier Becerra, who um, is HHS secretary for some reason, <laughs> former attorney general with absolutely no healthcare experience, uh, was dropped into the position of health and human services secretary in the middle of a pandemic. Now, this was controversial last year when they nominated Becerra for this position. And it was clear that the idea behind this was to get Becerra in there so he could conduct lawfare against pro-life groups. I mean, that was very ob that was just as obvious at the time but now the washington post reports that things ain't going well with um with the pandemic and they're looking for they're looking for a escape i'll just read you really briefly white house officials have grown so frustrated with top health official xavier becerra as the pandemic rages on that they have openly mused about who might be better in the job although political considerations have stopped them from taking steps to replace him officials involved in the discussion said yeah this is part of the taking steps to replace him is throwing him under the bus publicly so that you are justified in taking some action. Right. The next we're just, step, we're just recognizing the well-recognized problem. Yeah. The, the, the next step is having, um, uh, I, I'm not sure how to pronounce her name. Yamish Alcindor, um, asked Jen Psaki, does, does Becerra still have the president's confidence in Saki saying something like, well, I'm, I'm not prepared to talk about that at the moment, which is, you know, the, which is the death knell. Um, shortly after that, somebody discovers a, a great opportunity to spend more time with their family. Um, but Andrew, I mean, <laughs> they picked this guy <laughs> in the middle of a yeah, pandemic yeah. without having any, 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 any <laughs> healthcare experience other than being an attorney involved in some litigation around it. Uh, and that was really about the Obamacare contraception mandates when he was uh, attorney general of California. Um, this was going to end badly no matter what, but I don't think the White House can sit there and say that they've grown frustrated with a not with a, with an appointment <laughs> that they that knew they was made. that they made, yeah. and that I mean that's always the case, right? But I mean in this case, everybody knew that this guy didn't have any experience in this position, so I'm not sure that they have any room to to go running to the Washington Post for their little trial balloon about their frustration with Becerra. No, but they. They can count on the fact that uh, no one in the media is going to blow the whistle on them. It's just a story. You know, they gave who, whomever leaked it, 
assuming there was someone, whoever leaked it uh, gave the Washington Post an exclusive, and they oh, got yeah. to run with it and look like they're the only ones with it for uh, for one news cycle, or part of a news cycle anyway, and um, and it looks great. And then they're not going to turn around and say, "But wait a minute, you picked this turkey. Why?" Why didn't you know all this bad stuff before? He's he he's had office experience as attorney general in California, right? He he replaced um let's see, who did he replace? Someone else that was picked by Joe Biden on the basis of not necessarily qualifications. Right. Pamela Harris. And um this is a pattern with the with this guy. Uh, get someone, put them in for now. If it falls apart, well, whatever, we'll just move on and change the narrative. Uh, that was part of my column on Sunday, too, was, and I know you feel that you share my outrage at this, but <laughs> this, the way we left 14,000 Americans oh. and 60,000 allies uh, who had helped America while we were there and their families, Abandoned in Afghanistan, while well, the Taliban is now hunting down those allies, those interpreters and, and guides, uh, one by one, just left them there yep. after O'Biden promised on ABC National Television News that, uh, well, the troops will stay as long as to get everyone out who wants to get out. And then he just blithely goes on. This is what I, I've a couple of times in columns I've called Biden's casual cruelty. It's like you know, it doesn't. It doesn't bother him, and I don't know how you can betray so many thousand people, who in good faith helped the United States, in what was a losing cause, but it wasn't their fault. Um, how you can betray them, and not, not feel shame, uh, or be uh, motivated to to fix it. You know. In that sense, and I know you haven't had a chance to read this yet from the Atlantic, George Packard has a, I guess it's about 20,000 word essay about the abandonment of Afghan allies and Afghanistan by Joe Biden. Um, it's called Zero Responsibility. It's actually had a couple of different titles. Uh, another one, its original title was Joe Biden's Saigon, uh, Zero Responsibility. Packard leaves out abandoning the Americans, but he pretty much gets everything else right and he, and he he does a, a pretty deep dive into how all of this transpired. And and I, I don't want to put you on the spot about this Packer article because it just came out. And I'm sure you haven't had a chance to read through this yet. But Jim Garrity had actually a, a pretty good uh, uh, observation about this on Twitter. And it was just uh, a little while ago that Jim was talking about this. And he said, uh, the Atlantic is, it's interesting that the Atlantic is uh, now sort of demolishing the the narrative of empathetic Joe, because he comes across as cruel and uncaring in this. He is anything but empathetic in this. He's manipulative. He's calculating. He's cruel. Um, he's he's um, careless uh, in every sense of that word. And um, and that is, I think, a, a bit of a shift. I'm a little disappointed that Packer didn't explicitly talk about the Americans that were abandoned there, but everything else in that article is pretty damaging to Joe Biden and the whole narrative of, you know, well, we didn't have any choice. There was plenty of choices and Packer outlines all of them in this article. Yeah. I wish the Atlantic would be, uh, uh, outside the paywall after a couple of days. So more people could be exposed to that. Yeah. Yeah. That, that is one thing. This is a paywall article. I think you might be able to download the podcast version of it. So you can, I think you can listen to it. It's a couple hours long though. So bear in mind, you're going to be, you know, you're going to be on it for quite a while. Well, it's just such a stain. I, uh, we did a similar thing in Vietnam uh, and, the, and the dynamics were the same in leaving Afghanistan. Yep. Uh, uh, in the U.S. goes in with, I think the best of intentions. Now, Eisenhower said no, we're not sending troops into Indochina to help the French. And uh, within, I think, about 90 or 100 days of taking office, John Kennedy sent uh, special for Green Beret advisors to South Vietnam 
to help train the army to fight the Viet Minh and uh, Viet Cong. Uh, and <laughs> like Obama, he put restrictions on them. They couldn't shoot back, Ed, at the very beginning. Uh, even if they were fired upon while guiding these uh, these troops around uh, South Vietnamese troops around, um, but when they when the end comes, it was Graham Martin was the ambassador and I was there at the time, and he was very worried that people not uh, acknowledge we were leaving, that they shouldn't be seen burning papers and packing and getting families out like. Biden just ordered American families out of Ukraine Yep. Uh, because that would spread panic. So what happens now? And I should add that, <coughs> excuse me, excuse me. About 10 days before the end of Vietnam, the CIA came to my news organization and said, forget the ambassador, uh, get your people out. It's yeah. going to end and it's going to end soon and it'll be messy. Uh, and we did. Uh, and uh, I helped shepherd them once our people got to, uh, that was just a, a few dozen, got to Guam, helped shepherd them through immigration and all that. But um, it creates a panic because you didn't plan for an evacuation to avoid creating a panic. And the same thing happened in, uh, in Afghanistan. I guess it's a bureaucratic thing where, oh, no, we don't want anybody to know. And then all of a sudden, one night at midnight, uh, all of our troops are gone, contrary, as Biden ordered it, contrary to the general's advice that you're going to have to keep a couple thousand guys in there for uh, to get an evacuation going. You pulled everybody out at midnight, the lights went off, and the base was sacked by dawn at Bagram. And... Um, <laughs> Uh, this is another thing, like all the variants of of, of COVID that yeah. that Biden was not prepared for, and they've admitted. They said, "Oh, we were surprised by this." How could you not be surprised? How can you be surprised when you double cross? They didn't even tell the host country, Afghanistan, we were going. So sixty thousand of our people and their families are stuck there and getting hunted down. And Biden is blithely going on about going to Pittsburgh to uh, to mark the end of a racist bridge. Right. And by the way, you'll be glad to know that Packer draws a whole lot of parallels between the Vietnam experience yeah. and what happened in Afghanistan. It's actually a really good article. I Like I said, I'm disappointed that he didn't actually explicitly include the fact that we'd abandoned 14,000 Americans in Afghanistan that doesn't that point doesn't get made in this article but he and that's not a quibble that's that's a that's a significant omission on his part but everything else in there is really worth worth reading um and he's the, not and he's the, not defending biden no, no i'm sorry you go ahead no, no the impact goes on long after i mean yep. what foreign national would willingly commit himself to assist the us in any future operation, not yeah. necessarily military, but any, because the U.S. has its own priorities. And when we're done with you, see ya. Yep. We, got, we got politics in the United States, folks, and uh, we don't want to be seen. When and Gerald, this goes where both parties do this in Washington. At near the end, uh, on East, I uh, Gerald Ford was president, and he ordered a, a C5A Galaxy to fly from Sacramento to Saigon. It had 37 105 millimeter howitzers on board. And this was to help the South Vietnamese army. Yeah. Yeah. Now, the war is, is, is now down with the Saigon being surrounded. Everybody knows it's going to end. But for political purposes, you show, you're showing military support. And I was, I talked with the pilot. I said, was this, was this planned? Actually, they have two pilots because they fly around the clock. Right. Uh, I said, was this planned? He said, no, you know, I got called up. I think it was around Easter. He said, I got called up at midnight. And I said, you're going to Saigon in the morning. I said, oh, okay. I didn't even know what we were bringing. So he shows up to fly his immense plane. <laughs> those <laughs> things, <laughs> Ed, those things are huge. Uh, to fly it with the uh, 
37, um, or yeah, 3,705 millimeter howitzers. Uh, I just, and, and that somehow assuaged American guilt. Well, yeah. you know, we sent them the guns. What? Yeah. 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 It's it's a shame, and I'm embarrassed. It's all cover-your-ass politics. All right, Andrew, we're, we're almost out of time here, but we can't let you go without hearing the jokes yeah, of the right. week, man. Yeah, let's see. Um, these are all old ones because these guys have been on vacation. Um, so uh, Jay Leno, uh, it's a replay. He said, Huntington Beach, California is trying to embarrass drunk drivers by putting their mugshots on Facebook. Have you been on Facebook, folks? People already put their drunk photos there. <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, now another Conan replay he says, Oprah says her heart has been broken twice. She wouldn't say by whom, but she did reveal where she had the bodies buried. <laughs> and... Uh, Finally, uh, uh, Jimmy Fallon replays as Obama took Michelle to a steak restaurant for her birthday uh, was the first time in months the word Obama and well done were in the same sentence. <laughs> oh, my goodness. OK, there you yeah. go. Yeah, well, I, you know, Biden and well done. I'm not even sure you're going to get that at a steakhouse, man. It's, uh, that's oh. how bad things are getting here. Oh. There was another one where uh, where they said uh, they had the birthday party and and for the fifth year in a row, uh, while Michelle was looking at the cake, Biden stepped in and blew all the candles out. <laughs> what? Yeah. Uh, but he was just crazy Joe then. Now he's commander in chief. Yeah. Now he's in charge of the nuclear the nuclear button, folks. Yeah. Right. Hope you feel good about that. All right. Well, I feel good that every week we've got Andrew Malcolm, the prince of Twitter, the regent of Red State. Now I've got that right. Redstate.com. <laughs> you can find him at redstate.com. But he's always on Twitter, at A.H. Malcolm, on Twitter, at A.H. Malcolm. Andrew, thanks so much. We'll talk to you again next week, sir. You bet, Ed. Thanks so much. Thanks, everybody. This is Ed Morrissey of HotAir.com for Town Hall. Nebraska Democratic Party Chair Jan Klebe lamented this week that we're doing all these good things as Democrats, and yet voters don't seem to be on our side. Like the White House and Democratic leadership in Congress, Ms. Klebe gets this entirely backward. Inflation, shortages, the pandemic, and crime touch most Americans' lives every day, either directly or indirectly. Spiking crime rates limit our freedom of movement. Inflation erodes our buying power while pandemic policies and the supply chain crisis keep grocery shelves empty. Rent has spiked upward by as much as 40% in urban areas. Yet Democrats remain focused on their climate change policy in Congress, while President Biden demands even more inflationary spending to buy votes. Jen Psaki scoffed at crime concerns, calling them a figment of Fox News' alternate universe. In the real world, homicides and carjackings have exploded over the past two years, and retail thefts have shockingly skyrocketed. Democrats' problem isn't that voters aren't on their side, it's that Democrats aren't on voters' side, and voters have figured that out. I'm Ed Morrissey. Welcome back to the Ed Morrissey Show. Joining me is one of my good friends, my partner in crime on the radio in Minnesota for several years. Still, I am still a uh, at least an honorary member of the Northern Alliance Radio Network, even if I'm really south of the northern uh, description these days. King Banyan, uh, who has his own show on KYCR, KYCR in Minneapolis and is a professor of economics at St. Cloud State University, joins us to talk about well, economics, but more about Ukraine and Russia. King, great to have you on the podcast. Thank you so much, Ed. Glad to be here today. Uh, good to talk to you again. And no, you can check out anytime, but you can never leave the Narn. <laughs> I, it's the Hotel Narnia. There you go. There you go. There you go. 
Now, King is a. I, I, I had actually told King uh, we, we were joking around about the about the weather situation in in Minnesota, and he turned off his background. He's actually got a beautiful background for St. Cloud State University. We'll let him turn that back on at some point in this. Um, but it's mighty cold up there. Uh, I, I understand, King. It, well, it's actually a nicer day here today. Oh, it's, my goodness. Uh, it looks beautiful out there. <laughs> it looks so beautiful now, but it's a balmy 22, which for the last day of January is probably above normal. Yeah, so we're, we're pretty happy about, about the weather today. But um, uh, tomorrow night, expected low minus 25. <laughs> Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. 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 Don't don't rub in your weather any more than needed. OK, I, I, I will not I will not even mention uh, what it's going to be down here. It's actually a little on the chilly side for down here, but yeah. uh, it's 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 nowhere near that. So, yeah. All right, King. Um, speaking of chilly uh, relations between the West and Russia have um, I'm not sure if you can describe these as as chilly or, or sort of red hot at the moment. Uh, big conflict in Ukraine. Um, this is been going on at least almost a decade. Uh, you know, the Russians went into Donbass and seized Crimea um, eight years ago, <clears throat> almost exactly eight years ago, in fact. Mm-hmm. And now uh, you got troops massed on the border. You've got um, uh, all sorts of different signals being sent. The Biden White House is basically saying, expect an invasion. You know, President uh, Volodymyr Zelensky in Ukraine is saying, <laughs> wait, 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 wait. Uh, you guys are you guys are misreading the situation. What's actually happening in Ukraine? Well, right at this moment, uh, I think the Ukrainians are resigned that uh, should there be an invasion, um, which if it comes, likely comes in the next four to six weeks. Um, I, I, I mean, I still think there's a possibility for it to be a few weeks rather than days from now. Uh, the imminence that you hear from the West probably doesn't accord to what uh, certainly the Ukrainian government thinks at the moment. Um, I think there's a realization that should Russia come across with as many troops as they've got across the border at, you know, a six figure number, low six figures, um, the Ukrainians are probably not able to resist uh, a a Western push uh, toward, uh, toward the center of Ukraine uh, from, from that, that area they certainly can't resist anything coming out of the uh out of the region that uh, they were in before uh you mentioned 2014 when crimea was annexed and there is a russian friendly separatist government with some control over some other uh regions i might end up using the word rayon that's the actually the ukrainian word for what we would think of as being a state within the ukrainian nation um the um the the the, the, the they, they control pretty much two rounds in within within ukraine at this moment and have have in a semi-hot war in that region uh over the last seven years right uh the question is whether or not they would move and in, in what i mean obviously they have to come west but would they go northwest and that gets that gets that gets to that question um i think I think Ukraine. What, from what I understand, the Ukrainian military has told its its political leaders, do not expect our army to be able to stand and resist uh, the movement of large amounts of Russian troops for longer than a day or two, uh, and that you should probably have a fallback plan. I read a report that suggested they were already telling people in the region. If we are if we are significantly attacked, we're simply going to throw the munitions depots open and let citizens come take weapons as they need. And you guys take care of the, you guys are on your own. Um, I mean, it which sounds awfully desperate and frankly is. Um, I think the question is really at this moment, why hasn't it happened already and what might be happening over the over the weeks ahead? Well, I think it's a good question. Why hasn't it happened already? Why did why was there a pause between 2014 2015ish to this year? Um, and I don't necessarily think that it's simply who's in the White House at any one time. I mean, there's lots of factors that go into this, including, you know, what happened in terms of elections in Ukraine, for instance. What happened, um, you know, what's happening in areas like Belarusia, uh, Belarus, excuse me, Belarus, <clears throat> and um, and other factors as well. I think also 
the price of gasoline actually feeds into this. We can talk a little bit about the economics of uh, Putin's um, aggression here. But I mean, what <clears throat> you you've I mean, you, you've been an advisor to the U- Ukraine um, Ukraine's uh, central bank. You've got you you've always kept your finger on the pulse there. What what do you see as sort of the catalyzing circumstances here that that is saying now rather than three years ago or three years from now? Well, I think uh, at this moment, uh, Putin actually understands himself to have a lot of cards to play. I think he understands himself to have a pretty strong price of gasoline that will be there for a while. So his coffers are going to be flush. Um, So and, and that's helpful. But meanwhile, public opinion of him appears not to be as strong as it has been historically. And so nothing gets uh, nothing gets uh, your public opinion numbers up quite like a conflict with your near neighbor. I think the thing to think about, and I was listening to a podcast with uh, um, uh, uh, Aaron, uh, Leon Aaron uh, at uh, AEI uh, not too long ago, I think last week, I wonder really whether the, whether it might be possible that he's making that Putin is making a lot of noise. It builds up his numbers. It builds up his prestige. Uh, Aaron says, in essence, hey, you know, one thing that uh, the Russians really like is to see that the West is asking them for stuff. And we are certainly showing up and getting a lot of meetings with Putin. Putin's got a lot of FaceTime with Pre- with President Biden with with the eu and so forth and it makes him look very important um that's helpful for his his uh public his public opinion polls and they may need some help so maybe you want to keep it in this situation of being almost ready to to invade but not quite because it's keeping your face on page one because if there's an invasion and the invasion goes as we think there is within a week any any open conflict between Russia and Ukraine is gone, right? Right. Right. So at that mo at that moment, the 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 presence of his face with Western leaders will go away. Yeah, the sanctions may or may not have any real impact on them. We can talk about that. But what I what 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 he loses is the FaceTime because I think at that particular moment. It's the two. It's the State Department. So you have Anthony Blinken and, and uh, uh, Foreign Minister Lavrov arguing over over the terms of uh, a ceasefire. And frankly, that's just not good television. It's not even good television for Putin. He would prefer to be seen as being on the phone with the president because he's now got he's now got West undivided attention. That goes away as soon as the invasion's over. True. Or as soon as it begins, actually, because everybody's right. going to cut off. Yeah, I, I think that your his best leverage is probably the moment before you actually step off and send troops in. At that point, your leverage kind of disappears. Yes. Um, or at least it doesn't disappear, but it, it gets diminished significantly. Yes, I agree. I agree with that, and I think I I think that might also help us understand why Russia was so willing to step in quickly to help. Uh, quell uh, an uprising in uh, Kazakhstan uh, a couple weeks ago when uh, their leadership faced uh, some some internal dissent marches in the street. Um, they had a new government. Their new government kind of was in a panic about all these people in the streets, said, hey, aren't we parts of this organization of mutual mutual security with Russia? Maybe they should come help us. And Putin said, did I hear my name? And he runs on, runs, right. runs off to toward uh, toward Astana and Almaty to to uh, to send and sends about ten thousand troops in that direction. Um, and that might also explain why he may be a little slow playing this deal in Ukraine. Perhaps he stretched himself a little thin by reacting quickly and maybe a little hastily. But the deal there, Ed, is unlike Ukraine, which doesn't have any oil. Kazakhstan has a lot. Yep. And if all of a sudden Putin can sort of tell Kazakhstan, not your oil belongs to me, but I get to I get basically a proxy to your vote on anything that OPEC does. Um, that's a pretty that's a pretty big chip that he's picking up there. Well, not only that, I mean, you only have to take a look at a map to find out how strategically important Kazakhstan is to Russia. Oh, absolutely. I mean, even perhaps more so if you include the oil interests than Ukraine actually is. I mean, Kazakhstan is 
is a very large country. It's got a very large footprint. It, it, it basically touches all of the Central Asian, you know, states there. Um, uh, it, it's dominating in that in in that state uh, allows Russia to exert even more influence in in that area, especially now that the Americans have pulled out of Afghanistan. I mean, yes. you've got Tajikistan, Uzbekistan. You've got all these you've got all these smaller republics down there that used to be part of the Soviet Union. Who now have to look over their shoulders because Kazakhstan has essentially become a Putin. Um, I don't want to say a vassal state necessarily, but certainly they're, you know, Tokayev is very beholden now to Putin. And it's very clear that whatever happens in Kazakhstan will only happen with Putin's approval. Um, right. that, that's absolutely right. So, so I mean, I, I might push back on the idea that it's more important. I get the oil impact, but in if you think about the entire Russian foreign strategy, it involves borderlands. They have borderland. Kazakhstan is a borderland, and they want peace there. Also, the South Caucasus are a borderland. So they have, they've, you know, you and I have talked on your show before about Georgia and, and Russian occupation of Abkhazia and so forth there. They recently, they stepped in to mediate the dispute between Armenia and Azerbaijan. They had historically been supportive of Armenia. Armenia ends up on the wrong end of the Karabakh the latest Karabakh conflict in 2020, 2021, and and only to have only to have uh, the Russians step in and kind of freeze it in place. And so Armenia is in their pocket. Georgia, maybe, maybe not. Azerbaijan now has Russian troops basically sitting alongside their own troops in this in this area keeps Iran at bay. Russia is now projecting more toward Iran in that direction. And the right. other thing, and why I think Ukraine matters most, is not just NATO, but think about the actions of Erdogan in Turkey and the fact that Turkey and Russia have had conflicts in, in North Africa, in Syria, in other parts, in other part, you know, with the Kurds and so forth. All of this is playing into the fact that 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 maybe the if, to go back to the question we're asking is why haven't they done it already? One is he wants to keep everybody on the phone. That's possible. Right. But the other possibility is he's got a pretty long string of commitments that 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 swing around all the way from Kazakhstan in the east over to uh, Belarus and and even supporting still some. Uh, some uh, some units of uh, of separatists in Moldova, in the West, he's he's stretched pretty thin, and you wonder exactly how much they can actually accomplish. So I'm wondering how much of this is, how much of this is, you know, he's just keeping everybody on tenterhooks and and just you know using them as using Biden as a cat's paw, or is it that that perhaps he doesn't have as much throw weight? with all the other commitments he has in place? Uh, that's a great question. I guess the threat of sanctions might clarify that somewhat. The White House, I think, is finally kind of coming around to a sanctions package that might be that might have some impact, which is not to target Putin himself, which is silly. I mean, that was something that the Joe Biden suggested, I think it was about a week, a week and a half ago, but rather to target some of the people who are supporting Putin, the, you know, the oligarchy that uh, supports Putin, those people have a lot more exposure to Western sanctions than Putin will personally have. Um, do you think that's going to be effective or do you think that the oligarchy is pretty much figuring that Putin's going to win and they're not really that concerned about this? It's hard to believe that anyone in Putin's inner circle, uh, to, use a, to use a political science term, his selectorate, because they talk about having elections, but he really is is a creation of a small group of people who select him among the oligarchs. Um, I think I think to myself, does he have the resources to keep them satisfied? I think the answer is yes. I think the answer, I, I, and so I don't see those disruptions being all that difficult. I noted this morning, the Biden administration seems to have taken the swift transactions off the table yeah that's the yeah and i'll just i'll just say that's the that's the mechanism by which you transfer money from one country to another it's the it's the it's the it's the banking system international banking system and that the u.s government would do that probably can't really do that without the permission of everybody in europe as well uh because the european banks do have correspondent banks in you in russia 
that would be disrupted by SWIFT. And I'll bet the Germans have said, please don't do that uh, and, and so forth. But at some point, if you they've got those in the back in their pocket so that if there is an invasion, you could possibly see the Europeans say, OK, yep, it's time to it's time to de deploy the weapon of SWIFT on that. I think short of that, they really don't have a lot of a lot of chips. They don't have a lot of levers to push on to separate Putin from his oligarchs. I agree. Now let's get to what Putin really wants, right? Which is buffer mm -hmm. states that he can control around the Russian, the Russia proper frontier, I guess you could say. Um, and to get to a point that you, you sent me over a, a really good piece. Um, it was in Substack from Richard Hanania. It might, might, might be Hanania actually, now I'm looking at the name. Um, talking about a lot of background on this and it's a lot more complicated as things usually are than than you're going to get from necessarily brief media reports i'm not suggesting by the way that this is some sort of you know uh narrative driven type of thing it's just that this is incredibly complicated stuff and it's very difficult to put all of the complications into a report on sanctions or into a report on troop movements or, or on diplomatic talks and so these types of background things are usually really helpful. Um, and this, the thrust of this piece is that Russia is not the great Satan that the liberal, um, I don't even know what you call it, the liberal, you know, politocracy of the West and punditocracy of the West wants to make them out to be. Now, I, I think that Putin's a malevolent character. I think he's always been a malevolent character. I think we've had four successive administrations that have underestimated Putin's malevolency. And we keep paying the price for it. Um, Ukraine has paid the price for it. Georgia has paid the price for it. On the other hand, <laughs> and this is, this is, it's, it's not as if he's acting irrationally. Uh, the U.S. and to a lesser extent the EU were trying to push NATO right up onto Russia's borders, which, you know, when Russia was bankrupt in the late 1990s, might have seemed like a really good idea. Um, it doesn't seem like a really great idea over the last, you know, 14 years. Uh, you know, in Georgia, it's not a great idea. In Ukraine, it's not a great idea, clearly. How much of this is a reaction to Western expansionism and an attempt to marginalize Russia in that region? Well, it's always been that. When I was there, and I should tell your audience, uh, I was there in 1995 and 1996. I was there right after, actually, I arrived just as they were completing the process of removing um, uh, removing the um, uh, uh, nuclear weapons that were in Ukraine from removing the weapons that were in Ukraine from 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 the Soviet Union period. Right. We promised the Ukrainians in return that we would basically take them under our umbrella. Well, it turns out that promise of two nickels will get you a dime. Uh, it, 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 it wasn't, it, 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 it was a foolish statement on our part because we didn't mean it, but it was provocative to the Russians. You're right, Ed. At the moment I was there in 95, 96 with Yeltsin at that moment, in fact, fighting for his political life, trying to win re-election, um, Russia itself would have pretty much been powerless had, had, had NATO simply said, well, Ukraine, Georgia, uh, Moldova, all of those places are now part of NATO. Uh, deal with it. Uh, I mean, it, it, you could have done that and it would have happened. But what would have happened since then? You you would have provoked the Russians to act sooner. You might have brought you probably would have cost Yeltsin reelection uh, at that time. So you'd have just had Putin four years sooner. Uh, well, it wouldn't have been Putin. He was running against Putin wasn't running then. But you would have had you would have had a Putinish character a lot sooner, and we'd be, still be in the same place. Right. Um, so yes, we've always underestimated Putin. Uh, we always, uh, you know, and and yes, I still I still remember my fondness for when I heard John McCain say, "Well, I looked into Putin's eyes and I saw three letters KGB." Um, and I, God, God, God rest John McCain's soul. Uh, I, I think he, I think that's one of the most fabulous things ever said about Putin, uh, and 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 fully agree with it. But I think, I think we then, having made a promise we weren't willing to keep. 
never got NATO to coalesce around a strategy for an Eastern expansion of whether it was a good idea, how it would be a good idea, what would they, how would they admit folks to, to NATO and NATO, and importantly, how would they expand EU into that area? And it has always been a haphazard thing. Hung, I mean, if you you know think about the fact that we actually had to change the name of a country to North Macedonia just because the Greeks were upset that Macedonia was also the name of a region in its in its own north, right? Right. If you if it, it took, gosh, two and I think two and a half years to get Macedonian accession to to the EU just to do a name change. If if so, how much harder was it going to be? to really branch the EU into that area. They've never thought this out. They, they have, they have frankly slept walked through uh, 25 years of, of this process ever since they told the Ukrainians, yeah, give up your nukes. You'll be fine. We'll take care of you. Right. Yeah. And, 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 and we've led them down and then we have, we have haphazardly stepped forward to support people. Uh, uh, it, when I was there in 95, 96, it was at the National Bank of Ukraine. The governor was Viktor Yushchenko, who eventually becomes the president uh, during the Orange Revolution. Uh, and that was a period of time in which the, the Russians were very upset, but still didn't have a whole lot of capacity to do more than monkey around. Ten years later, they had the capacity to actually send troops surreptitiously into Kiev to back the current then Soviet or excuse me, Russian supporting government uh, that got overthrown by uh, first uh, got overthrown and eventually leads to the election of Zelensky. Um, this is all happening. This is all happening while Russia is gathering strength and we still don't have a plan. Right. How, I, yeah. mean, I mean, I mean, I mean, I, so I, I, I remember we talked about this on, on a show you were guest hosting last week and I heard uh, and we got some blowback in the comments about about my, the fact that I'm kind Didn't of a ever. little. Yeah, I, I was a little, uh, I, you know, I'm, you know, they said they said you guys are just not supporting Ukraine. I'm like, well, we haven't supported Ukraine for 25 years. And frankly, if we were honest about it, we never intended to. Right. Oh, you know, you know, um, and to think somehow now you're going to rush in with what? You would need what? 25, 30, 35,000 U.S. troops on the ground. You'd need a, a footprint as big as we put into Afghanistan, a footprint as big, not maybe not as big as we put into Iraq, but you'd need a pretty big footprint to put up enough force to, to at least hold the line against 100,000 Russian troops. These are not Northern Alliance, you know, irregulars this is not this is not uh uh you know isis this is regular troops of russia right this is a a very modernized a very modernized russian russian troops who have gotten a lot of lessons in how to conduct warfare in these various places they've already fought they just i i i just look at it said well, we've just walked right into this mess. And frankly, we have no good exit. And and as I read the comments from that, my reaction was, well, yeah, you're waking up to the fact that we've been sleepwalking for 25 years. I don't blame you for being upset. But frankly, we lost this thing 20 years ago. It wasn't winnable. I mean, it was not winnable. That's all you exactly have to do is right. Look, all you have to do is look at a map. <laughs> the Russian yeah. lines of communication to Ukraine are very simple, <laughs> very mm-hmm. short. Um, they can resupply it well. Take a look at the western lines of supply to ukraine and we're not even talking about air power which the russians will have in droves over that region i mean there's simply you can't logistically speaking it's a loser and ukraine should have understood that we should have understood that um i know that denuclearization was a big issue in the 1990s um and that maybe the Ukrainians would never have given up those nukes without that type of guarantee. But I mean, they should have understood that. I mean, just looking at a map and understanding <laughs> understanding the geography, uh, they, they should have looked at that and said, yeah, okay, we're, this is just basically a, a face-saving cover. We're, just, we're giving up the nukes anyway. We're just going to do this. And if anybody took that seriously, um, should And I should say, it? I don't think the Ukrainians did. I think that the Ukrainians were clear-eyed that we're giving this stuff up because we kind of have to. 
and we and, and they probably knew that the, you know the cavalry was not just over the horizon right. uh, or, or or just behind just behind the, the mountain to the west I think they knew that they would be on their own um, because they just knew the Americans were never going to let them keep that stuff and right. at that moment the, the you know remember that economy had gone through hyperinflation in 1993 uh, they had lost about they lost more GDP per capita than I think it if I remember, I wrote this. I wrote this book 25 years ago, but they they lost more GDP per capita at the time, the way we were measuring it, than any other of the of the former Soviet states. They lost the most. Their people suffered more than any other place. And here are the Americans saying, "If you'll just give us those nukes, we're going to send you true. We're going to send you uh, uh, all this aid. We'll send you this guy from Minnesota to help your national bank." No, they didn't say that. But, you know, uh, it was a uh, good but, trade. You know, it was a good trade, though. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, you know, we'll give you Banyan. You, know, you give us your nukes. We'll give you Banyan. That'll be awesome. Uh, and and so, you know, I, I, but they are they knew that they weren't going to be there. I think the problem is that that in essence, um, we ended up we end up buying our own story. We ended up buying yeah. in and thinking that our that our story, which was just a story and wasn't true. We ended up believing our own. Well, I won't use the word that <laughs> comes usually after that. We believed our, our, our we believed our own our own story, our own propaganda, fiction. our own propaganda. Propaganda. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 I, I think that I think that there was a lot of you know end of history Francis Fukuyama stuff going on in the 1990s too. For sure. And and I think that there was some sort of grand plan to get Russia to engage in a, a pan-European uh, security alliance. Uh, that would have been obviously a um, a bulwark against China, and and perhaps the Islamic states as well. I mean, there was all sorts of this nonsense that said, just because the Berlin Wall fell means that centuries of Russia being Russia is suddenly gonna is suddenly gonna stop. Russia is so, suddenly gonna stop being Russia all of a sudden and become, I don't know, <laughs> Czechoslovakia, you know, Poland maybe. Uh, I mean. I mean, at I don't the time, wanna... it didn't make a lot of sense. It certainly doesn't yeah. make sense now. I well, I it, the my book in remainder in remainder shelves everywhere, um, right next to I, mine, <laughs> right next to yours. I see yours over your head, uh, and, and I don't. I should put some more of mine back here. Um, the um, the but the um, at the time, I actually have a chapter in the book where I discuss the the illusion of market romanticism. Now in because I'm an economist, I'm writing about our views of how markets would spontaneously form, all these laws would come into place, and all of a sudden, free market capitalism would spring forth anew from the wreckage of the Soviet Union. Um, we actually sold ourselves on that story in 1993 and 1994. And when I finished the book in 1998, I said, well, it turns out that was that was a fiction. Well, I think this is just another aspect of that. I think foreign policy is engaged in romantic thinking. Uh, as, as sh you know, and, and that's what we're describing here. And unlike Mark, Mark, the market form of romanticism, which I think has now died, and we all understand that it was, that it was fiction. Perhaps foreign policy romanticism has taken a little bit longer. Nobody likes when you and I or other people talk about a uh, realpolitik of, uh, of here, here's what the Russians are going to get, and here's the here's the reason why the U.S. isn't going in. Nobody likes that, but I think people who hold on to those views are actually thinking romantically with their hearts, um, and the feeling of what's the right thing to do. And yeah, the right thing to do is to stand behind your commitment to them. But frankly, at the end of the day, Realpolitik says, well, you know what? It probably really isn't in the U.S.'s interest to fulfill the promise we made in 1994. Well, and I think that this is a lesson for us in the future to not make promises that we can't that we can't back up. I mean, it's easy to do the Article five thing with NATO. Um, mm -hmm. It's not so easy when it's when when that country that's got the Article five uh, protection sits on a hostile country's borders and um and and it's especially difficult to do that when you don't have that article five um uh, treaty obligation and even if you did as you were saying earlier um all it would have meant is an earlier conflict you know king we're really kind of out of time here we were going to get to the economy but this has been such a fascinating topic i'm glad that we spent our time on this 
We're going to get you back for a, a, a talk on economics in the next, uh, you know, maybe next couple of weeks or so. We'll, we'll get you back to do that. But in the meantime, where can people find you and tell us about your about your um, on the air show in uh, the Twin Cities? Uh, if you go to TwinCitiesBusinessRadio.com, you can find the King Banyan Show. We broadcast out of Minneapolis over the air, 9 to 11 on Saturdays. Uh, replays on Sunday, same time, but you can also uh, listen to the podcast there as well. And if you want to find me personally, just reach out, just look at uh, stcloudstate.edu and look for uh, look for me in the School of Public Affairs. So stcloudstate.edu slash SOPA is the School of Public Affairs at St. Cloud State. Thank you for letting me mention uh, mention our school here on the Ed Morrissey Show. St. Cloud State, fine, fine educational institution. And uh, King Banyan is one of the finest people I know, is a good friend, and I'm blessed by your friendship, sir. Thanks for spending time with us today. You bet. Have a great day, Ed.